Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Andres Espinoza Agruto to discuss his book, Salsa Consciente, Politics, Poetics, and Latinidad in the Meta Barrio. Thanks for tuning in. Andres Espinoza Agurto's new book, Salsa Consciente, Politics, Poetics, and Latinidad in the Metabarrio, explores the Salsa Consciente movement, a Latino movement of music, poetry, and political discourse that exploded in the 1970s. Largely linked to the development of Nuyo Latino popular music, Salsa Consciente was brought about in part by the mass Latino migration to New York City beginning in the 1950s, and the subsequent social movements that were tied to the shifting political landscapes. Defined by its lyrical content, its unique sound, and the political and social issues facing U.S. Latinos and Latin Americans, Salsa Consciente evokes the overarching cultural nationalist idea of Latinidad, Latinness. Analysis of over 120 different salsa songs spanning 60 years The book draws on lyrical and musical perspectives to argue that the urban Latino identity expressed in Salsa Consciente was constructed largely from diasporic, de-territorialized, and at times imagined cultural memory. From this perspective, Latino-slash-Latin American identity is in part based on African and indigenous experience, especially as it relates to Spanish colonialism. A unique study of the intersection of salsa and Latino and Latin American identity, Salsa Consciente appeals to scholars of ethnic studies and fans of salsa music alike. Andres Espinoza Agruto serves as assistant professor in the Department of Music at Florida Atlantic University. He studied Afro-Cuban percussion at the Escuela Nacional de Arte in Cuba and graduated sum cum laude from Berklee College of Music with a degree in jazz composition. He holds an MA in music from the University of York and a PhD in musicology and ethnomusicology from Boston University. Andres is also a composer, musical director, and percussionist in his own group, Aihie, and a consecrated drummer in the lineage of Anya Ilukan. He's currently conducting research on the lineage, performance practice, and aesthetics of Afro-Cuban bata drummers and drumming. He's an active participant in the Percussive Arts Society, where he serves as the co-chair of the World Percussion Committee. Andres, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your book because it's such an interesting opportunity for me to think about a subject that I find really fascinating. I wonder if we could just start with the kind of general topic. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by salsa consciente and how it relates to salsa music and culture more broadly? Absolutely. The main thing about salsa that I kept finding while I was reading about salsa and listening to salsa is that mostly scholars and, and, you know, general salsa listeners kept referring to salsa in general. And I I came up with this concept that in discussion with some colleagues that salsa really should have last names because it's more than just flat salsa. You know, there are subtexts and sub ideas under what the salsa is trying to say. Some of it is romantic themes, some of these, some of them are nationalistic, some of them are about race, some of etc. So the concept, and, and unfortunately it's not my concept, but the idea of salsa consciente is salsa that is conscious of its own uh, positioning in society. 
I mean, in thinking about salsa as a product of largely of the urban Caribbean migration, Spanish-speaking Caribbean migration to New York in the 50s and how that developed, the position of particularly Latinos in general, but particularly Puerto Ricans who were the majority, was very disenfranchised in society. So there was an underlying political consciousness and social consciousness that because of the time period, it turned also into the discourse of salsa because that's when salsa starts, starts in the late 60s into the 70s, is what we generally refer to as the salsa boom, when Fania Records start putting out a lot of records by, by various artists like Willie Colon and Hector Lavoe and Fania All Stars, etc. And they start putting out all, all of these records. And I started looking at, at the records, thinking of them with the idea of salsa consciente. And I started to look, okay, so if, if this classification of salsa with a last name actually exists, this salsa consciente, let me look at what this salsa consciente actually entails. So I started looking into the definitions of what, of what it was. And the big, basic three topics that I came up with was the idea of this consciousness was one, a racial consciousness, two, a social consciousness, and three, a shared heritage, i.e. non-nationalistic consciousness of being Latino and Latin Amer or, and or Latin American. And because of the fact that salsa is really a New York product, it played into this idea of, well, I am Latino and so are you, but you are Puerto Rican and I am Colombian, yet we share so much of this consciousness together that we can actually make it sound together and make it sound like our music, despite the fact that it's neither yours nor mine, nationalistically speaking, at least. Yeah, I want to get into kind of the, the nitty gritty about the relationship between different kinds of Latino or Latin American identities and the salsa consciente. But I wonder if we could pause just a little bit around the music itself. How would you describe maybe salsa as a genre? And is salsa consciente kind of conscious salsa music? Does it have defining features that distinguish it from other members of the subfamilies of salsa? Yeah, absolutely. I, generally speaking, most people think of salsa as a, as a genre or style. I tend to think of salsa as a, as a way of performing Afro-Caribbean music, you know, because it, salsa has, it has several influences, you know, and sometimes you listen to the sound and it sounds very Cuban, sometimes it sounds very Puerto Rican, some, sometimes it sounds, it has a lot of Colombian sounds, sometimes it has some Venezuelan sounds, Panamanian, etc. So it's really more of a, of a way of performing the music and how we m go about mixing the music. So. For example, a, a dear friend of mine, Bobby Sanabria out of, out of the Bronx, uh, his definition that salsa is uh, Cuban music with a New York attitude, which I love. And within the idea of, of uh, salsa consciente, yes, there are several distinguishing features. The main distinguishing feature, or the most obvious one at least, is in the lyrics. Because the lyrics, as I was saying before, address the social, social issues that permeate the Latino communities. And uh, one of the biggest issues, of course, being the, the definition of who am I as a Latino, the identity piece, you know, not only as a, as, as a national of a, a, a Latin American country, which is what I call Latin Americans, but rather as a Latino being somebody who has migrated largely to the United States uh, because of proximity. But at that point, uh, and this happened to me when I came to the States, and it's part of why I eventually got into this topic is that I started thinking about, well, 
I, I was born in one country, but when I came into the United States, I became a different thing. I am now, I am now Latino, which before I came into the United States, I had no idea that I was. So I started thinking, how is this represented into who I am or who am I expected to be in the United States and what am I expected to be my, my main identity? So I finally embraced this identity, actually have come to enjoy it. And, uh, and I discovered this, that this music, Salsa Consciente, referred to this idea of Latino and Latinidad, which is the connection between several different people of uh, Latin American heritage in another country, given that they have undergone migration and also have the, their heritage. So when you see that connection, that is what determines our idea of Latinidad. And Salsa Consciente, started, uh, what the way that I think of it, starts thinking uh, and speaking clearly about we are from different countries, yet we have the same issues. So let's, let's talk about these issues and, and try to develop something here in order to improve everybody's life, regardless of whether you are Puerto Rican, Cuban, you know, Mexican. It's, we're all in the same business here. We're all Latinos and we're all, we've all been given this identity in the U.S. as immigrants. So let's make, the, make it work for us. I think that's such a fascinating feature of the work that you're doing and, and the, this idea that the music itself is expressing different aspects of, of that identity coming from different national origins and coming together in the sort of context of New York and other U.S. settings. I wonder if you could say a little bit about what those issues are that the music is speaking to that are able to transcend the kind of, or, or, or bring together, perhaps not transcend, the sort of, you know, uniquely national experiences that folks coming from Latin America might have. Yeah, the, the big discussion in salsa that we have, or the one that most people have addressed historically, is the nationality of salsa. And I, I, I kept reading about the nationality of salsa, and I was like, but I, you know, it's either Cuban or Puerto Rican is the classic discussion. And I kept finding that there were a whole bunch of people who danced salsa, who performed salsa with, that were neither Cuban nor Puerto Rican. So I started to think of on how do these people identify with salsa? And I include myself because I'm neither Cuban nor Puerto Rican. And how do, do people identify with this, this idea of salsa? And I started looking for topics that address the idea of who is a Latino and, or Latinx, if however you want to think of it. And how does this relate to, how does this make some kind of statement in the music? So I started to define the idea of Latino, which is of course incredibly complicated, but I put it down to three categories, which is the one that serves me. And I realized that uh, somebody will say, well, but you're missing something and, and that's all well and good. But the, the categories that I came up with are the idea of, of race, of mixed race, as in there is African, there is uh, indigenous, and there is some level of Spanish. In those three categories, you know, of course, I started in looking at race, I started looking specifically at the idea of addressing blackness in music, being black, blackness, black proud. Uh, we also have to consider that the music, uh, salsa music came up, came of age in, uh, at the time of the civil rights movement, civil rights movement, in the same vein that uh, James Brown said loud and black and I'm proud came. So it's very much related to that type of ideal, the political uh, ideas of the time. So I started looking for music that was a salsa music that started that addressed the idea of being black. And I started also looking for salsa music that addressed the idea of indigenous. And on top of that, I started looking for music that referenced Spain and I couldn't really find any of them. But I did what I did find was a sort of um, the idea of Spain has colonized us. 
So we don't we are really in opposition to this idea of colonialism. And therein lie therein lie the crux of, of race in that discussion. Then the second level of the music that I started looking to develop this idea, this consciousness, was the idea of class consciousness, because uh, largely because of the situation of Latinos in the United States, and this is a generalization, is the idea that most Latinos in the United States came here in search for a better of better opportunities, and as I did myself, and that concept permeates because there is this idea of we have been struggling with poverty and all this all the social issues that come with that and so in in intersecting class and race with the nationality or at least the 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 idea of uh, of heritage i started to see which music was the one that was addressing either of these two levels and then the third level that i discover is the transnational what i call the transnational connection because even though some people might be of one nationality or another we were all listening to salsa and listening to the same the same type of of ideas that we could all relate to one of the big things that i discovered and i and i sort of knew this but it, it became obviously clear was that the the lyrics that i was listening uh, uh, when i was growing up the lyrics that i was listening to in salsa music particularly in the music of ruben blades who my father is a big fan of we were listening to records and I always thought that the that the descriptions of the streets and the people that were on the records were actually my neighborhood. And even though Ruben Blas is a Panamanian singer uh, living in New York at the time, writing about the Latino experience in New York, the neighborhood was the same. And I started thinking and I in talking in the US to my friends from Colombia, my friends from Puerto Rico, it's like, yeah, I had the same experience. That neighborhood was my neighborhood. The same people, the same smells, all that commonality was important and all of that was being addressed as the latin neighborhood quote unquote and the, this idea of the transnational heritage where we find our commonalities as opposed to our nationalistic differences it plays a lot in. so i started looking for mu a music that address these three levels and what i found was of course a lot of music that address blackness being black the the, the concept of being a african descent the concept of being colonized in, on the earlier stages, and then as a development towards the 1970s, the idea of addressing class issues and, you know, people who are in one social class and all they do is look up or they're in particular social class and look down to other people, social discrimination, uh, ideas of the everyday, uh, for example, the laborer, the, the construction worker, songs about the construction worker and the struggles of the everyday life of, of regular workers. And then on the third level, the idea of transnational is how we, who the music was directed to. Because at some point in the mid seventies, we start to listen to, to use this term Latino. And the term was used many ways as in, listen to me Latino, this is what's going on. You have to pay attention because we can make our lives better. So it is in those three levels that, that, the, that I started looking for how Salsa Consciente addressed the idea of being Latino and how it related how it developed this consciousness to sort of, sort of to speak. I wonder if we could, if you could say a little bit more about the idea of the music addressing, you know, the need for consciousness or trying to raise consciousness. You talk in the book about the kind of origins of, of salsa music in relation to protest music and, and music of revolution, you know, farm songs, field songs, those kinds of things. Like, how would you describe the politics of salsa consciente? And, and is it a kind of, protest music or is something more complicated going on there 
Well, it is and it isn't. But then this is and and this is the part where it gets interesting because it's not necessarily music of protest in 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 the form of denou- denouncing something, but rather it's looking at the own history of Latin America, particularly not the long history of Latin America, but rather the modern history of Latin America and the role that, for example, the United States has had in Latin America uh, over the 20th century. And in addressing that, it reminds us that despite the fact that we come to the United States in search of a better life, we might have more opportunities, we still have this dichotomy where we are set in one foot in one place that has a history uh, that we must not forget because that history of issues needs to be addressed. What we also need to consider is that salsa music, as I just mentioned, comes of age in the late 60s. So it comes of age with, uh, with the, 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 the civil rights, the Black Power movement, the African independence movement, etc. So it is not a, a mistake that, for example, hip hop is born in the Bronx as a movement at the same time that salsa is being born like about five blocks away. So there is, there is this connection here within the, the, the struggle of the people. It is, after all, salsa and, and what eventually is called salsa consciente comes and it relates directly to this idea of disenfranchisement by a, by a group of people that was literally the, the one that were at the worst level of poverty in the United States at this point. The Puerto Ricans who lived in the Bronx were basically in a war zone. We can look at all the all the pictures and there's a couple of books that have come out about the Bronx in, this, in the early 70s at this point. But between hip hop and salsa being at the same time, the struggle was very, very similar. So the idea of addressing one race to class uh, becomes prominent. Also, parallel to black power, and, and of course it's not talked about uh, that much in general, is the idea that akin to the Black Panthers, there was a movement called the Young Lords, Young Lords Party, which is basically the Puerto Rican version of the Black Power movement. And actually, one, one of the people who participated actively with the Young Lords, he happened to be the MC for many, many salsa shows. His name is Felipe Luciano. He actually has a, a radio show in New York every Saturday. And he was one of the main people that, that, that helped me figure out the timeline for this book. And he was very, very politically active. And although the, the music was primarily not meant as a protest song, it, it was popular music, dance music. It included a set of dance music which contained its classic, you know, love songs, songs of lament for the homeland and the, all the classic topics that we would find in popular music. But on top of that, it would throw two or three songs in the middle of a strong dance component, you know, that, that would have that some certain types of consciousness raising messages. So while you're dancing, you know, you could, again, the salsa is all, it's, it's very much about dancing. While you're dancing and you're, sing, you're singing along, it was like, hey, I'm black and I'm proud. Hey, I'm brown and I'm proud and we have to fight and we've been colonized and we have to remember, we must not forget that, that we are being displaced and, and, you know, our families in Latin America are still struggling, etc. All of that while you're dancing, which unlike protest music in Latin America uh, and in the United States, a la Bob Dylan, well, and, and in Latin America, what we call the new Latin American song, it, it was m- more of a songwriter kind of uh, event where you sat to listen to the lyrics. Here, the lyrics just kept flowing and you kept listening to them. And before you knew it, you were singing about racism. So it has content of protest music, but it's not directly the same. 
You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Andres Espinoza Agurto, author of Salsa Consciente, Politics, Poetics, and Latinidad in the Meta Barrio. You know, it's really interesting to hear that thinking about the dance origin of salsa or like the degree to which it's kind of functioning as an entertainment. And then it has artists who are doing this kind of consciousness raising and slipping in those messages under the radar. I spent a fair bit of time in my youth, you know, thinking about punk rock music and the different genres of punk rock. And there was kind of a perennial question about political punk rock music and like, what does that mean for the scene? And can it be supported? And is it valid if it's too political or is it too political? Was there similar kinds of reactions against uh, Salsa Consciente? Like, did people complain about the politics in their dance music? At some point, uh, they did in the early stages, but then, you know, with the development of the music, the one artist that comes in, into mind that starts changing some stuff is, of course, is of course Ruben Blades, who released his first record alongside Willie Colon in 76. And his discourse was highly, highly political, so much so that he actually got banned from playing in Miami for being called a communist even though he, he's not, but you know, the, the community here is very, very uh, conservative. So there were some complaints, but it wasn't large, a large level of complaint. With Ruben Blades also, what happens is that salsa, which up to that point had, con had been considered sort of lower class music, sort of hood type music, and also the music that, that, that you know, the lower, lower classes would listen to and the music that black people would hear to, but with the appearance of somebody like Ruben Blades, Salsa gains a level of intellectual discourse that it didn't have before. And a lot of people become interested because of that discourse and start listening to Salsa because of that discourse. So there, are some, there is some level of, of whether it, it was politically self-sufficient, but the big difference here is that these issues were still very, very active in Latin America, where the music was actually being received, and all of a sudden was having huge success because the issues were palpable. If we, rem if we have our, our history book over here, we have to remember that during the 1970s, uh, Latin America spent most of the decade in, and into the 80s under dictatorships. So the fact that, that some entertainment music contains some coded political messages was highly relevant you know, because you could recognize while still be under the radar, politically speaking. That raises such an interesting question about the structure of all of this. Uh, you know, you, you talked about its locations in, in New York and Miami and sort of other U.S. locations, but then appealing to audiences sort of around the, the Latin world. Could you say a little bit about you know, this kind of idea, like how the industry hung together or how how the recordings and the musicians and the culture really produced this sort of what you call in the book, the, the meta barrio? Yeah. First of all, the meta barrio is, uh, I think, is a, is a concept that is that it comes in handy for several things, actually. But the, the concept of the meta barrio is what I was referring to earlier, the fact that, you know, the, the, the descriptions that I found in the recordings of the neighborhood that were in the recordings and the characters that were in the recordings, I met a lot of people from other countries that share the same idea. So this idea of there is this, this barrio, this neighborhood that exists somewhere, but it doesn't actually exist, yet we all know that neighborhood. It, therein lies the Meta Barrio, the idea of the Meta Barrio. 
because in the meta barrio you walk into the meta barrio and you smell the beans cooking you know and you smell the the, the frying pork and you and you see the sheets hanging over the balconies and you listen to all the mothers calling their kids and all of that imaginary collective imaginary of sounds smells and and visuals i i decided to put them in like okay well there is this neighborhood that doesn't exist so it's a semiotic neighborhood let's call it the meta barrio because it's, it goes beyond the the neighborhood where all latinos of all nationalities can interact with each other and advance consciousness you know that that is the meta barrio and what happens is that um, salsa, once it gained some recognition uh, in the United States in the, in the 70s, it started to be distributed in Latin America. And big part of salsa's success was because of a movie made by Fania Records called Our Latin Thing. And in this movie, depicted the, the band leaders of, uh, of the Fania All-Stars group, that was the, the group that was better known for performance of salsa. It depicted the, the band leaders of this group as street heroes, you know, and they, they showed pictures of Spanish Harlem, El Barrio in New York, and pictures of the images of the Bronx, and little kids playing on the street, and, you know, playing stickball, and the same types of things that were happening all over Latin America. Then on top of that, it showcased these singers putting on shows that made them larger than life. So this idea of, oh, well, that could be me, it played significantly to the success of salsa because it showcased itself not as popular sort of disposable music, but rather as grassroots music. So in, in that connection is where we start to see the distribution of music in Latin America. And of course, because of the situation in Latin America, the political message that was started being included in records resonated. So you see, like, like I was saying, you start dancing and you say, oh, I love you, baby, and that kind of, a, of, a, of a classic dance music. And then, then beyond that, by the way, think of colonialism. It's like, oh, yeah, I haven't thought about that one in a while. So it, it, it sort of um, spread a message that generally one would think belongs uh, more to the literary side, but it spreads it sort of like a, an orally tour. Uh, where where this discourse is put as a highly marketable concept. I wonder, could you give us a, an example or two of the way that that appears in a notable song? Well, the most uh, the, the, the example that I, that I always use, and I have a couple longer talks about this, but I'll give you the brief version, is uh, Plastico by Ruben Blades, for example. And Plastico is a song that First of all, it almost didn't make it as a record because the song is like seven minutes long. And for 1978, that was unheard of. But the song, in terms of the lyrics, it's called Plastico, which means plastic. And it's a critique to a consumerist and materialistic society. So the first part of the song is the description of one, the plastic girl and, and the things that she likes. She likes uh, Chanel perfumes to dress, uh, to dress high, uh, to, to dress with uh, fancy dresses and go to socialite parties. Then the, then the plastic guy, and the plastic guy likes expensive cars, fancy watches, you know, has a comb in his hand and, you know, that he's worried about how he looks. Then the plastic kid, and the plastic kid is kept away from kids of different colors and is being, is being taught how things are supposed to be for them. And then as they, as they are depicted as the plastic family, they say they do all of this, but they live in debt and because all they care about is the appearances. 
not the depth of what they should be thinking about. And then that is followed in the, in the, up around the, the three and a half minute mark is followed by a warning. And this is something that, that happened very commonly in Salsa Consciente. And it's not really a warning, it's um, a call. Sort of, it, it, the, the, the song literally says, listen to me Latino, oye Latino. And that, that's where the song changes, the whole mood of the song changes. So it becomes a call, listen to me Latino, despite what you think, you know, that this is the, the, the face of success, it isn't because the plastic actually melts under the sun because all that you are seeing here is, is fake. And then you're seeing people with these fancy cars and they are, you know, or they put it on their credit card and, and this consumeristic materialistic society is not what we as Latinos should be looking at. We have a strong history to be proud of and we should honor that history and we should unite ourselves. And the reference goes to here to Simon Bolivar, who was uh, the first idealist in the, in the independence in Latin America to say, you know, Latin America should be one, uh, one united nation. But Ruben Blades here is saying, let's, let's think of us as united because our struggles are the same. So let's all get together and fight because even though you see all this plastic all over the city, all over, all over people, there are still peoples who haven't sold who they really are and they fight every day to help. And these are the peoples that we should be looking at. It's a lot to accomplish in a seven minute song. I know. No, it's, it's Ruben Blades is a signature of salsa is the amount of lyrics that he has. Yeah. You talk about some other, uh, another composer in your book, Catalino Alonso. Could you say a little bit about how he fits into your sort of um, understanding of salsa consciente? Sure thing. What I, I divided the book basically into two parts, not basically, in two parts. The first part addresses the performance of salsa. And in addressing the performance of salsa, and this is very much a, a, a regular analysis of salsa in the terms of performance, because when we think of salsa, we don't generally think of the composer, we think of the performer. So I started looking at what the performers did historically between the, 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 the 50s and all the way up to the early 70s. And, uh, and I started thinking of how the, the in performance, the utterances that they would use during a show, for example. And I started wondering, well, was this part of the original composition? And the concept was that because salsa is in performance, these utterances were, you know, dependent on the, on the singer, not on the song, but rather more, mostly dependent on the singer. The song might or might not, and then the singer might add or might not add. But then the second part, and I started looking at, at the idea of, of composition, composers of this music as an advancement of the literary, literary aspects. And that way I started using the idea of literary, literary criticism to anchor this idea, because it, generally speaking, you know, in Latin America, the reading is not particularly popular, but listening to music is. So it, in that sense, the idea of composition becomes sort of a, a vinyl literature, a vinyl record literature. And in the development of the, mu of the music and the how the themes are addressed, the first person that I analyze as a composer that makes a huge, huge contribution to the music is actually Catalino Tite Cure Alonso. Catalino Cure Alonso, Puerto Rican composer, poet, journalist, mailman, etc. That, that he used to write this song. And what is fascinating about him is that Basically, every single salsa hit that has ever existed, he wrote it. And I started looking into his work 
because I knew his about his existence. And I started looking, okay, what songs did he write? And I'm like, oh my God, he wrote that one, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. And many times he spoke of social injustice. The guy was a journalist after also he, he observed a lot of the things that were happening around him. So he starts talking about social injustice, displacement, uh, you know, for example, he wrote music for um, Peter Conde Rodriguez. Peter Conde Rodriguez is, uh, was a very black man and a phenomenal singer and very black. And he said, you know, how about you sing some songs about black pride? And so Curia Alonso specifically starts writing those types of songs and developing this idea of utilizing literacy as a way to develop composition. And in, in that sense, he puts the first step and then developing on that step is when Ruben Blades, the, the person I was referring to, comes into play and he takes it even further. Catalino Curialonso Tite was, a, was Puerto Rican, so he had um, a Puerto Rican uniqueness to him. Ruben Blades being Panamanian, not being from Puerto Rico, he could see sort of from the outside, quote unquote, from the outside, what was happening and why the, the people were not were uniting despite the fact that most people consider it to be Puerto Rican there were several nationalities uniting and he see this as the Latino struggle but Curia Alonso is the first one to address this issue one of his songs that was actually made famous by the final star final stars uh, band is called Pueblo Latino Latin people and the song talks about Latino unity and the song the song is from 1973 if I'm not mistaken and the chorus indicates we must unite otherwise we will perish and this is from a puerto rican guy talking to everybody and be taking advantage of this concept of the the unity that was sort of in the air so to speak it's so interesting that you say he was doing like actual outright literacy work with the music yeah uh, no I'm, and, and that's big part of what happens with salsa consciente is that the lyrics become increasingly, increasingly important. They're not disposable lyrics, so to speak, and not, not to diminish anybody's work, but some lyrics have more depth to them than, than others. You know, some of them are simply repetitions of the same type of song. A love song, you know, it's, it's, it might be beautiful, but, you know, how many love songs do we have? So in that sense, there is a, a movement to, to develop this idea that, that there is more to work aside from the development of the performance and rather it becomes a premeditated thought we are going to address this issue in this song as opposed to oh, let's just play this song you know so so the role of the composer in that sense plays very strongly as to what actually makes the song work i wonder andres if you could say a little bit about your own experiences as a performer and how they might relate to your understanding of the music of this period and like the power of music more generally to do the kind of identity work and the kind of unifying work literacy work that you've been talking about here the idea of me as a performer i've gone back and forth i've played with a lot of people and i've always loved performing salsa and Eventually, I have become a band leader, and I, I currently at a Florida Atlantic University, I direct the Salsa Ensemble, where we play actually many of these songs. It's because I struggled as a, as a relatively young person. I came to the U.S. in my 20s. So I struggled as, as a young person to understand the identity. And one of the things that may help me a lot was this idea of finding myself in salsa and salsa music that related to other people. 
And since I am in the education field, I think it's important for, for younger generations to listen to those messages because we have been talking about this and we are, I see my younger Latino students having the same struggles that I used to have. It's like, well, you know, I grew up in, in Puerto Rico, but now I'm here, or I grew up in Colombia, now I'm here, and I came here when I was nine years old, and I have no idea where do I fit. So in addressing those discussions, not merely from the literary point of view, but from the point of view of dance music, it changes how we approach it, because all of a sudden we are having fun, and we're listening to this music, and we're singing this music, and we're performing this music with a very, very strong message. And it becomes part of, of, of the development of who the Latinos are in this country. And, and it becomes particularly important in terms of performing it for one, to, for people to listen to, and for two, for the same uh, performers who nowadays are my students at the university to perform this music. And, and when, when we start performing this music, what I do either on stage or during our rehearsals, I explain the lyrics. I have, I have, um, the same way that I have in the book, I use the same tabulation where I have the lyrics in Spanish in one side and the lyrics in English translated into English on the other side. And so I can I show them, okay, this is what this song is about and this is what we are talking about. So keep that in mind when you're singing this song, this is what we have to keep in mind. We're talking about this particular issue. So let's, uh, let's address this in performance. And I've done the same when I do, when we do it on the stage, when I've used it, uh, I generally tend to say, you know, now we're going to play this song. This song is about such and such, unless the lyrics uh, indicate A, B, and C. So as a performer, it, it has become an important part of what I do to, as, a, as a way to continue this idea of salsa consciente, because unfortunately, it has become highly replaced by a commodification, you know, and now, we, of course, we have the, the urban music taking over the, Lat the Latin American sound and Latin America and the Latin sound in the United States which sadly, there's only a few artists that have something to say. Most of them don't say much. So it has become important to sort of keep that flame alive. And, um, and I've taken it in many ways as, a, as an educational endeavor. What happened to the Salsa Consciente movement sort of as the 1970s rolled over into the glam luxury of the 80s and beyond? Well, the Salsa Consciente continued throughout the 1980s, you know, although it started dissipating, as you are saying, due to the glam and luxury of the 1980s. And also towards the end of the 1980s into the 1990s, all the dictatorship cycle of Latin America ends. So, so the, the political addressing of these issues doesn't become as crucial. And mostly what people wanted to do was to liberate themselves from the, from the oppression and just party away, so to speak. So what happens with the movement is that a lot of the younger generations have taken to urban music and rap and particularly rap has a subgenre which is called rap consciente and and it's in spanish and so and the, the, what i find fascinating and i address this in the in the afterword in the book is that it's the newer generations who actually grew up listening to this music and they started talking about the same kinds of issues and the reason that that i like to keep it alive and i think the book in this in that sense is timely is because we are still talking about the same issues the immigration, Latin American migration into the United States has become highly controversial, of course, and it be, has become highly politicized. And it's something that we, we have been addressing from the point of view of music for a long time. And, it's, and what I try to do is to give historical contextualization that it's still very, very applicable 
and you know with rap consciente and i'm thinking of course of eh, anita tiju and residente calle 13 eh, lapis consciente etc there are several people who are addressing social issues which was part of rap in the 70s but now except that now it's in in the 90s 2000s in spanish but it's also part of of um of a mission to keep the history of a movement that has been there and it still exists to a much lesser extent of course but it still exists and it keep keep that consciousness alive and then say we are latinos this is our heritage let's think about it let's not just take it for granted which is what happens very often therein lies my idea of performance and and, and teaching it as well and, and granted it's become an academic endeavor in many ways although i do dream of creating an ensemble and performing the music all the music featured in the book and then have the have the book and recordings uh, while performing in different universities oh that would be just amazing to see it would be so much fun i wonder on that note like thinking in that way for for listeners who are maybe completely unfamiliar with the genre and some of the artists that you've been talking about here today could you um, provide a couple of suggestions for places for people to start listening to some salsa consciente? Well, searching by artists is the, is the way to go. And um, of course, we all have our uh, our platform to listen to stream or what have you. Although lately, I have turned more and more to vinyl records because they actually have some information on them. But uh, anything by Ruben Blades is is the is the primary source. He's the one that 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 took the salsa consciente the furthest but many of the artists that i mentioned in the book such as uh, arsenio rodriguez some of fania all stars there are some music by um by cortijo y su combo uh, for example all of those uh, address this idea of consciousness to some level or another a good guideline and i did this in the book on on purpose is i i put in an appendix of all the recordings that I analyzed in the book and the, the composer, including the composer, and whenever I could find the information, the performers. So if, if you have the book in hand, you know, buy my book, uh, you can actually look at all the names and, and search them on Spotify and you will find many of the, any, any and all of the tracks listed. Uh, and you can read along with the lyrics that I, that I have provided. That's great. I think that's, you know, with the book in hand and uh, the Spotify pulled up, I think that's going to be a great place for people to start uh, expanding on this really fascinating and informative conversation that I've enjoyed so much. Thank you so much, Andres, for taking the time today. Thank you. I, I appreciate it very much being here and it's a, it's a pleasure. And I, I certainly hope that, uh, that we start reading and not just taking a, this music uh, for, for granted. Yeah, me too. We tend to take salsa for granted as, as a simply dance and entertainment song uh, where it has there's a lot to say about it. Yeah, and you can start by checking out Andres Espinoza Agurto's book, Salsa Consciente, Politics, Poetics, and Latinidad in the Meta Barrio. It's available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find Andres online at aespinozaphd.com. I'll put a link to that in the description of the show. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of the MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at the press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. 
Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.